Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another edition of ESPN's Formula One podcast. I'm Alexis Yunus, and I'm here with Lawrence Edmondson. Nate Saunders will be joining us in a little bit with a little something special that we're going to tell you in just a bit, because as we all know, it's a bit of an off week before we turn all our attention to spa. Pretty excited for this one. But Lawrence, a big thing's coming up this weekend, I suppose, especially in the United States. And for all our American listeners, it's the Indy 500, which is why this is going to be a bit of a different podcast for everyone. It's going to have a bit of F1 and a bit of Indy, just making a nice, happy harmony between the motorsport world, Lawrence. And, and Nate's going to be speaking to someone pretty special, right? That's right. So the Indy 500 usually clashes with the Monaco Grand Prix. So um, we struggle to cover it in a depth. But this uh, year, of course, with COVID and everything, it's all different. So Indy 500 coming up this weekend. Um, Nate, for anyone who knows him, will know he's a massive <laughs> Indy 500 fan. So uh, when we found that we had a week uh, before that we didn't have a normal podcast for a normal race coming up, uh, uh, Nate wants to see something special. So he's got hold of Alexander Rossi. Uh, who F1 fans will remember as well because he used to race in F1. He was at Manor. Uh, he also used to race in GP2 back in the day. But now, of course, he is racing uh, in, uh, in IndyCar and he won the Indy 500 in 2016. So what better guest to kind of try and guide everyone through, uh, give some people an introduction to the Indy 500. I'm sure some people will know it better than we do already. Uh, but either way, it should be, should be a good listen to hear what he has to say about the upcoming race. Yes, guys, so definitely stay tuned for that. Nate will pop in in just a bit to speak to. But like I said, it's still a bit of a fusion podcast, this one. So we are going to touch on a little bit of Formula One, especially as the news stories keep coming out. We know that, you know, there's nothing groundbreaking just yet. But a couple of incidents, Lawrence, of course, you're going to come and give us some um, extra details on first one. Just paying it back to the weekend at the Spanish Grand Prix. We know it was a day to forget for Charles Leclerc. Um, his, you know, his car, of course, we knew had to be retired for mechanical failure because it, the engine just sounded like it stopped. But one of the headlines that came out for it, from it after, and remember, guys, you can catch all these stories on ESPN's Formula One page as well. Um, one of the stories that came out, though, is that he drove for two laps without a seatbelt. And I know this sends all moms into panic mode, and I'm sure his mom probably must be panicking after this, Lawrence, because it, it does sound pretty daunting knowing that you can be going at those speeds without... Um, having yourself fully strapped in but he did I suppose give some context to it didn't he yeah a little bit um it's still a really bizarre thing to happen and really shouldn't have happened at all um but basically we saw him have that spin on track uh and the engine cut and usually like certainly in the old days if your engine cut that was it because the way you start a Formula one car is you stick a starter motor basically into the gearbox turn it over and the whole thing gets going However, what they can do now is use the hybrid system to kind of kickstart the, almost like a bump start, the, uh, the engine and get it going again. So Ferrari told him to do that after he'd pretty much already given up and started to take his belts off. And that when he went back out on track, car got running again, he went back out on track. And you would have thought, you would have thought, if you're in a car, a Formula One car, and you're about to do 180 miles per hour down the pit straight with 19 cars also racing around you, you'd probably go back into the pit lane. It was an option from where he was if you didn't have your seatbelts on, uh, but he didn't. He continued for one lap and he said, something feels very strange. And Ferrari were like, it's okay, don't worry. All looks fine from our end. And of course they were looking at the engine. They weren't thinking about his seatbelts being undone. And then he came past the <laughs> Sorry, pit lane. Sorry, mom. <laughs> exactly. And then he came past the pit lane again and then kind of revealed, oh yeah, by the way, I don't have my belts done up properly. Um, 
do you think we should uh, retire the car? And and they did. Uh, they, I mean, they tried to bring him in and just do the belts up, but they're in this kind of, I think it's a six-point harness. So there's two straps that go in between the legs. There's some that go over around your lap, and then there's the ones that come over your shoulders as well. So there's a little process. <laughs> so there's a, the whole process to get them in, and a driver can't put them on themselves once you're in mm. the cockpit. So... Um, I was lucky enough to drive a Formula E car. I don't know if I've ever mentioned that on this no, podcast no, you uh, last year. And um, that is the same kind of belt system, essentially. You know, you're looking at the same harness that's going on you. And you're so tight in the cockpit that there's no way you can do it yourself. And certainly the one thing you can't do is pull the pressure on those um, straps that come over your shoulders enough to get you tight enough in. Because although I didn't do it in a Formula, a Formula E car, in a Formula 1 car, they're pulling 5G under braking, which means all that force, five times the force of gravity, going into those belts and they need to be held in place and if you're not then uh, yeah you're kind of like tensing your body to keep it in the right place which is a terrifying thought at that speed so I, I don't understand why Leclerc didn't realize in that moment how you know I'm not going to finish this race without any belts uh, but for whatever reason he did he did two more laps so it's a funny one because it kind of slipped under the radar that's why we're talking about it now and we didn't talk about it on Sunday we, we didn't really know the details but it kind of slipped under the radar until um, F1 played out the whole mm-hmm. Uh, radio exchange um, so we didn't even get to talk to somebody at the FIA about it because usually the race director does a session with us at the end of uh, a Sunday and it would have been nice to get his thoughts on a driver driving around with, without their seatbelts and whether F1 would do anything in the future to make sure that absolutely never happens again but it's in the past so we're, we're, I'm sure we'll talk about it in Spa again because um, it's the kind of thing that should not really be allowed to happen I'm sure he definitely definitely must have had a call from Charles Leclerc's mom. And I think he will be forced to release a statement after this because if it's one thing I know, my mama would definitely be calling and just be wondering how on earth that was able to happen. But you're right. If anyone's, you know, driven a car, even when you start off, even though you should fasten your seatbelt before you even drive the car, but things happen sometimes. And, you know, if you've ever tried to drive and put your seatbelt on at the same time, it's a bit tedious, let alone with all that G-force and those speeds that you get up to in a Formula One car. But thankfully, it was only two laps and we all know what happened in the end and he's safe and sound. So at least his mama can be happy for that one. But let's move on again. And here is where Lawrence can have a little mini Lawrence gets nerdy because Lawrence, when you sent me the link (laughs) to read this story, I mean, I started like Googling things. I just started seeing like pi equals the square root of some other stuff. And I was like, how on earth? I can't even. But anyways, I'm just going to read the straight line of it because a study has been done by Formula One to try and determine the fastest driver of all time. And the winner is none other than Ayrton Senna. Shock, shock, shock. Obviously an absolute legend, but I'm sure a lot of people will be wondering how on earth did they arrive to this conclusion? And he beat out the likes of Michael Schumacher, who came in second, and Lewis Hamilton in third. So I know, Lawrence, that they tried not to factor in the car performance itself, because you probably look at Lewis's car and think it probably beats every car ever right now, given you know how technology has evolved and whatnot. So Feel free to get nerdy. Let us know exactly how they arrived at this because I know they learned something. They use something like machine learning and cloud technology, whatever that is. So, Lawrence, please just make it make sense. I, I don't know if I can, if I'm completely <laughs> honest. Um, so, yeah, I, I, this is was put together by one of Formula One sponsors, uh, which is Amazon Web uh, Services, and you, you'll recognise AWS because it exists on um, on 
the uh, race footage that you'll see, you'll often see a tyre graphic come up, uh, which will tell you how much life each tyre has left. And they're almost always wrong. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so don't do trust you, it. So Toss it out the window. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a funny one. And you're like, well, this, this list makes sense. Ayrton Senna fastest. We all, knew, we all know he was incredibly quick. Had the uh, pole position record before Lewis came and took that away so you think yeah that makes sense Michael Schumacher Lewis Hamilton like some people will have a problem with Lewis being third and not higher mm. up but you're still thinking okay you go down the list Max Verstappen yes fair enough Fernando Alonso fifth Nico Rosberg sixth Charles Leclerc seventh and you're still like well there's a few names you know from the past who are missing but let, let's go with it and then you get to number eight and it's Heike Kovalainen <laughs> and you're like well Heike Kovalainen was a good driver but was he the eighth fastest Formula One driver of all time. To be fair, they say this is from 1983, not all time, and presumably because oh, okay. of the data set they have. But still, you're like, there's some big names missing there. There's world champions. There's Alain Prost. There's uh, there's Nigel Mansell. There's uh, Mika Hakkinen. Uh, those last two don't even make it on the list in the top 20. So it's it's a it's a remarkable list. And apparently, what they've done is they've taken people's um, comparisons with teammates. Uh, and seeing who was quicker more often than the teammate and by how much. And then they've kind of taken those teammates and when they've changed teams, they've seen how they compared against other drivers and they've built this kind of matrix of drivers, uh, giving each a kind of score and a weighting. And then that kind of depends on how much kind of score and weighting you get by beating another driver, I think. And, uh, and they come up with this list, but it's like all these things in Formula One and it's worked, doesn't it? Because the whole idea of this is just to get people talking about motorsport and kind of- you know, Like us formal, right now. Get, exactly, <laughs> they, 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 they've done us. They, you know, they've got us where they want us. But it is, it's a really interesting debate because this is a debate you'll have with any other F1 nerd you come across. Who was the fastest driver of all time? And um, it's a really hard one to answer because of course they didn't race against each other, uh, a lot of them, and they all raced in different types of cars. In some of those circumstances, the whole qualifying system was different. So it wasn't that long ago in the uh, in the mid 2000s where you had to qualify with your fuel that you took into the race. So if you wanted a slightly longer stint in uh, first stint in the race, you would qualify with more fuel, which would obviously be a disadvantage. So you then had to balance that out. And there was always fuel corrected qualifying times. I don't know whether those were used or the actual times. And so there's, you know, it, it's clearly not an exact science and uh, it never will be. But um, I, I would probably agree with Ayrton Senna at the top. You know what, I'm going to go with that. Because if you watch his onboard qualifying laps back in the day when you had to change gear, when there was no power steering and when they had a good kind of, you know, 1000 brake horsepower in qualifying mode behind them, chewing gum tyres that were really sticky for one lap, you know, he was sensational. So... From a pure spectacle point of view, I can't deny that Ayrton Senna was up there. And if you look at the extent to which he beat some teammates, like the kind of margin he would have over Alan Prost when they were teammates, and we know Prost is a four-time world champion and no slouch, then yeah, it's fair that he's up there. But some of the names missing and then some of those names that are high up, like Heike Kovalainen in eighth, Jarno Trulli in ninth. Uh, you'll be pleased to know Lando Norris is 15th. Oh, get him, Lando. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then he's behind uh, Nico Hulkenberg in 12th, Rubens Barrichello in 11th, um, Giancarlo Fisichella in 19th, Adam Prost actually, sorry, he finished 20th there. But oh, jeez. Yeah, no Nigel Mansell, no Nelson Piquet, no Mika Hakkinen in the top 20. I don't know. Anyway, it got us talking and that's exactly what they wanted. But um, interesting list and uh, we, we've got a new story on it and F1 have 
a bit of bit of info on it as well. So um, yeah, go and check it out and get angry and get on Twitter and say what <laughs> you really angry. think. <laughs> oh, you know the Twitterati is definitely coming out for that one. Like I said, I don't think I will have many people that may argue Ayrton Senna at number one. I don't even think the likes of like Lewis Hamilton will ever argue that either. But probably further down the list, I'm sure it's gonna it's it's gonna rub some people the wrong way. But mission accomplished. We're talking about it, and let's talk about. Another story now, because this, of course, has to do, Lawrence, with the calendar and the rest of it, since we've all been trying to figure out how many races we'll actually have in this unprecedented season of Formula One because of the coronavirus pandemic that's still going on right now. And exactly where, you know, we'll be able to go. Well, we probably won't be able to go physically, but where the, everyone else will be able to go. And I think w- things are a bit clearer now. We probably have a bit, uh, an, a set number of races, Lawrence, and a return to Istanbul, I'm hearing. What's the yeah. latest there? So w- we're getting there. You're right. And uh, there's some rumours, which I think within the next week or so, uh, well, we'll find out for certain. But um, yeah, I should think maybe end of next week, we, we should have an idea going into Spa. Uh, which is strange enough because that will be the seventh round of the season and we still won't know how many races there are, let alone whether the old race is going to happen or not. We won't know how many races there are. But um, at the moment, it looks like they're going to end up with 17. Uh, Istanbul Park, uh, which people with slightly longer memories of Formula 1 will remember. They'll, they'll remember it's an awesome track. Uh, it's one of the newer kind of, well, I say newer tracks. Obviously, it's gone off the calendar now, but it's one of the Tilka-built tracks. So um, it's not a classic kind of Suzuka Spa-style track. It's, it's one of the ones that was built by Herman Tilka, uh, designed specifically for F1. But it's actually a really, really, really good track. Um, so we'd love to see that come back on. It looks like it will do. And then it looks like we've got two races in Bahrain, um, probably not with the different layout that was suggested at one point, probably with the same layout, layout twice, and then finishing in Abu Dhabi. There'll be a total of 17 races when you include uh, the 13 that we already have um, marked down. And, uh, and that will be it, which will be a decent sized season. And it will um, fulfill F1's TV contracts as well, which is so important for getting uh, the money to be able to share with the teams and the prize funds. So that was F1's target from the start was to get over 16 races. And it looks like they're going to do that. Um, the, the interesting thing is, is that actually, OK, we're missing out on some real classic racetracks this year that we would love to go to things like places like Interlagos uh, Suzuka uh, Circuit of the Americas not a classic in terms of how long it's been on the calendar but a really great racetrack and obviously the US Grand Prix so we're really sad to be missing those but at the same time we're getting some of those kind of fantasy races that we thought we would never see again in Formula 1 you know Imola coming back uh, Nürburgring uh, on there and then of course now if Istanbul Park comes back there's a lot of fans of that racetrack because it really was Fantastic, and it had this awesome corner called Turn Eight, just because it's of that generation of tracks where we didn't have proper names for uh, for corners. But Turn Eight, and it's a triple apex apex left hander uh, that takes you down into like a downhill straight, and then into a potential overtaking zone. And it was just a wonderful place to go and watch cars in that era. And now the cars are significantly faster. I think it's going to be fantastic if they go if they go there and uh, and seeing the cars through there. So. Um, some good news, I guess, uh, that we're looking to get a pretty, pretty decent calendar together with the right amount of races and with some with some kind of curveballs on there as well. Well, good news there. And I suppose, I mean, it, it kind of sucks that we're probably going to have to end our newsy segment on a bit of a, a bit of bad news, I suppose, for a certain Pierre Gasly. Things have been going so well for him, you know, at least on the track. But back home in Normandy, his house 
got ransacked. Apparently, um, you know, some some quite valuables, including racing helmets, were stolen there. Lawrence, what were some of the details there? I mean, I don't mean to laugh because that's an absolute nightmare, but it's crazy, you know, that these things do happen. Uh, we were talking about it just um, before when I was saying how even Liverpool's footballers had their houses broken into while they were playing the pre- while they were celebrating the Premier League title. It's like. Come on, people. But I know Gasly's gone since on social media and actually helped or is asking people for help or any more information because that's how the the world works nowadays, doesn't it? Yeah, really sad. So um, I guess that's that's one downside of being a Formula One driver is that if people know where you live, they know when you're not going to be at home. And he lives in Normandy. And uh, yeah, he said that he had engraved watches, racing helmets, clothes and jewellery had all been taken. Uh, I was... I hope, I really hope uh, that the trophy, remember he got his first podium last year in Brazil and I really hope that trophy is somewhere safe and that he's still got it. He didn't mention it, so that suggests to me that, um, that that didn't get stolen. But yeah, I mean, what a horrible, horrible thing to come back from a race and your whole house has been torn apart. I'm sure it's happened to a driver in the past, but I can't quite put my finger on, on who exactly it happened to. But um, yeah, uh, very sad. And he's said in his message uh you know some people are really worthless disrespectful and contemptible and um yeah i kind of can't agree more with that you know that's um it's a really kind of downer to happen isn't it and it's not like he's one of the super wealthy formula one drivers either you know he's um he's on one of those junior red bull contracts where okay they're very comfortable they live a great life (laughs) but but he's not like the super you know super millionaire um live in monaco type so you know it's um yeah it's, it's sad that that can happen but uh i guess that's just the world we live in unfortunately isn't it i know it's just it's just like you said the the possessions that you know money can't buy that probably got stolen as well it reminds me of that story that um usain bolt when he donated his um spikes to the london museum after he won the in, at the london olympics i set, set the world record again those got stolen and you know to this day i don't even know if they've been returned and it's one of those things that they said they're worth this amount of money. But let's be honest, how do you put a price on that? You know, it's 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 those things that you could never get back. And I think one of the Olympic medals as well um, was stolen from Johan Blake's house, too. That was back in Jamaica. And it's just one of those things that you're like, come on, people. But the thing is, when they steal something like that and you decide to pawn it online, someone's going to be like, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, there's only yeah one genuine gold medal from that Olympics for that event. So it's going to be kind of obvious. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know where these things end up. It's crazy, isn't it? Um, and uh, and even if you've got a replica of, let's say, the, you know, a trophy got stolen or a helmet got stolen, you've got a replica made. Where every time you look at it, you're going to think, it's not the real one. And then it reminds mm-hmm. you of it being stolen. So that is, yeah, that is rough. Really horrible. That is extremely rough indeed. We definitely hope that Pierre manages to get at least some of those items recovered and definitely up his um, his security. He might want to call Arsenal's um, side Kolasinac there to help him there if we all saw that video of him fighting off a knife wielding person like with his bare hands what a man what a man indeed anyways that pretty much concludes us touching on some of the formula one stories that caught our eye obviously this is you know a slower week because we're all taking a bit of a break from f1 before we all head to spa which is why we're gonna mix it up with some indy 500 so without further ado let's head on over to nate Nate here with part two of this episode, and we're doing something a little bit different this week with the second half of the show. It's not often in August we'd be talking about an Indy 500, but obviously the world has changed this year, and the 2020 Indy 500 is taking place this weekend. To preview that, we've got two interviews for you. One of them is a man who's won the race, and one of them is a man who has covered plenty of these races in the past, sat with me in the media center in 2017 
That's Ryan McGee from ESPN.com. I'm sure plenty of you listening will not need an introduction to him. Synonymous with ESPN's racing coverage, with its college football coverage, and one of the most knowledgeable guys I've ever met when it comes to motor racing. The second interview is with a man who I first spoke to when he was a member of the Formula One paddock and was aspiring to be a Formula One driver uh, in the future. His name is Alexander Rossi. Uh, again, none of you guys need an introduction to him. Won this event in 2016, shortly after the door had closed them in Formula One. And since then, despite his road racing background, he's actually become one of the best guys on oval racing. Uh, he very nearly won the championship, the IndyCar championship last year. Uh, so looking forward to catching up with both of them. We're starting off with Ryan McGee, and he'll be followed up by Alexander Rossi. How's it going? So glad to have you on the podcast. And um, no one can see you listening to this, but you've doubled up with a Formula One hat and an Indy 500 shirt on, which I really appreciate. How are you doing? Yeah, and I've got like an old school uh, NASCAR poster on the wall back here. Yeah, no, yeah. I, 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 I coordinated all of this just for you guys. But no, I'm good. I'm, I'm, I mean, it's weird. Mm. Um, I mean, you know, we're all, uh, you know, as you guys know, here in the United States, um, there are varied approaches to the pandemic, but uh, my particular house and, and our employer have been great about keeping us safe and not going crazy. But that being said, when I hit cancel on the Marriott app a few <laughs> weeks ago on my Indy 500 hotel room, it was like Vader screaming no. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was not a great moment, but uh, the, the month of August is, is rolling along and they go run that race Sunday with, with or without me. And it's going to be without me. And how, how, when was the last time there was an Indy 500 without Ryan McGee there? Must be a long time. Uh, uh, more than a decade. Um, I, I think this would have been number 17 for me. Wow. And so, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, it's, I have missed them before, but it has been a while. And as you know, Nate, uh, I get very comfortable when I'm there. That's, uh, that's my event. And it's, uh, but I'll be, I'll be hunkered down on the couch and, uh, writing a column from the couch as we all do these days. Yeah. I felt like we we're all getting a little bit too comfortable doing that. So I'm looking forward to going back to races and actually writing from the media center again. <laughs> but, um, but on the Indy 500, which, which of these two things is weirder for you? The Indy 500 being held in August or the Indy 500 being held without fans? Because those two things, you know, the date and the fact that it's just full of fans is kind of the two iconic things to it. So which of those two do you think is the weirdest? Well, I think the weirdest will be no fans. I talked to Marco Andretti about this uh, earlier in the week. Of course, the pole setter for the 500, and he's been going to that event, I mean, his entire life. And it's just, it's just before he could walk. And so I asked him about that, and he said that, honestly, you know, the routine has felt like May, other than the fact it's just more humid. I mean, it's so hot. They used to run the, the Brickyard 400. NASCAR used to run the Brickyard 400 around this same time in Indianapolis. And so all these IndyCar drivers are like, these people are nuts because this made, I mean, it's so hot. So that part is different. Um, it's just more humid. As you know, it can get plenty hot there in May, Nate. But the, uh, but, but, but the fans, that's going to be bizarre because to me, the race itself, I mean, they call it the greatest spectacle in racing. And the race itself is amazing. But the reality is, is that it's really about everything that starts at 6 o'clock in the morning. And even before that, it's about the parade on Saturday and it's about carb day and it's just about everywhere you go is this mass of humanity. And that's not going to be there. What Marco said was he said his favorite part of the experience is just walking beneath the gasoline alley sign, uh, from the garage, you know, on, uh, to the pit lane. And he said, and, and that's going to be quiet. And he has, I mean, there's going to be a band and there's going to be a flyover and all this, but he has no idea what it's going to feel like when no one's there. But once the race starts, 
uh, they all say that, you know, it'll, they'll be too busy to think about their fans. But, but before the race and after the race, without 300,000 people cheering, it, it's going to be bizarre. And I remember, so in 2017, for people listening, Ryan was kind of my spiritual guide at the Indy 500. I sat next to him. <laughs> you were talking me through it, and you were seeing kind of me every day coming in with a bit more awe and wonder each time. But I remember I jumped in a lift with you in the convoy on the way there. And yeah. the amount of people walking, you know, there's, there shouldn't be that many people up at six in the morning unless it's a zombie nope. film. You know, they were yeah. all like walking towards the thing. <laughs> and I remember thinking, I was like, I've never seen this many people before in my life. It's yeah. unbelievable. And the noise before you know, with, with the flyover and the American national anthem, you know, not an American, but even that, you know, I, I remember having goosebumps because it was just, so, you know, so many people there. Um, yeah, just really, really difficult to imagine that. And do you think that it'll almost be unfair on the winner a little bit if they, you know, a first time winner wins it and it's just a completely empty Indianapolis, that'd really kind of be quite a sucky situation to be in, I guess. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm working on a story for ESPN.com. I'm trying to think about what were the weirdest Indianapolis 500s and you know over the course of more than you know a century there, there's plenty of those a century in 10 years and so but but no one has ever experienced you know anything like that like this and it's um yeah it's a little unfair and I think that whoever wins it on Sunday particularly if it's a first-time winner um they're gonna want they, they all say the worst thing about winning the Indy 500 is the fact that now your entire life's goal is to win the next one. And you actually want to win it more than you did before you won your first one. And I think it'll be doubly so for the winner of this race, if it's a first time winner, because they won't experience it all. They're going to drink milk and they're going to get the wreath around their neck. Uh, but everyone's going to stay about this far apart and people are going to have masks on yeah. and, and there, there won't be the cheer, you know? And, and I think, you know, everyone's favorite part of winning the race aside from drinking the milk is taking uh, that victory lap you know, in the pace car and the convertible after the race. And uh, the one Indy 500 I attended in the grandstands. I remember watching Kenny Brack and, and AJ Foyt, you know, riding by in the convertible. And it's an amazing moment and kissing the bricks and everyone cheering for that. And they'll do all those things, um, but there just won't be uh, anyone shouting back. Maybe some people in the parking lot across the street, like we saw during poll day, but, uh, but you're not going to hear that inside the racetrack. Yeah, they have to have pretty big loudspeaker for that to be uh... – yeah. Well, and, and, I, and, and, you know, and, and a lot of sports are pumping in the, the, uh, the artificial crowd noise and they're not going to do that. Yeah. That would, that would, I think that would feel weird, weirder if anything, cause you'd yeah. know like yeah. this, this isn't yeah. right. Talking yeah. of guys, talking of guys chasing that second victory, we're speaking to Alex Rossi later who obviously won that first one. And he said that since like, he didn't quite appreciate the magnitude of the event. And now he's like, well, I've won it once, but I've, like, I want to soak it all up again. What is, yeah. it, what is it about the Indy 500 exactly that makes drivers like that? Because obviously there's the prestige about it, but for so many of those drivers, un until they've won that race, you know, they really, it's like a big gap on their, on their resume that they, they still need. So like, is there one ingredient behind that? Or do you think it's just everything that goes into it? It's, I think it's just because it's the race, you know, and, and it's, you know, the, so many of the traditions that are enjoyed at every motorsports event, no matter where it is in the world, uh, you know, it has its roots in Indianapolis, you know, certainly in American oval racing culture. And so it's interesting because I remember when Dale Earnhardt Sr. finally won the Daytona 500 in 1998. And I asked him as a young reporter, I said, well, you know, you've won seven championships. Now you've won a Daytona 500. You know, would you have ever traded in one of those championships for the Daytona 500? He says, no way, not a chance. Because the championships are what this is about. And you certainly 
uh, have a lot more experience with Formula One drivers than I do. But when I've talked to them, they've said the same thing. You know, everyone wants to win Monaco. You're not going to trade that in for a world championship. But Indianapolis is different. It just is. And when we had the, the schism, we had the split in open wheel racing in America, you know, 20 years ago, that they were fighting over one race. They weren't fighting over a championship and they weren't fighting over Michigan and they weren't fighting over Long Beach. They were fighting over Indianapolis. And so that race means more than anything in the world. And, and that's why you see teams show up just to win this race and they might not run for a championship. And a lot of those teams don't. And so uh, it's just, it's it. I mean, you experienced it, Nate. I mean, you, you've been to Monaco. I'm not, um, you've been to uh, so many of these classic Formula One races, but there's just something about Indy. Um, that when you even when you if you if you go and take the track tour in December, there's still something about the building. There's something about being in there. And so yeah, oh Rossi, I love him. Like, the, the greatest loss I've ever seen uh, was when he finished second in that race. You know, uh, last year. And it's, to me, it's um, uh, he's the perfect example of this is a guy with road racing roots and a guy w- with his roots in the Formula One system. But, but but the second he got a taste of Indianapolis, you see with Alonzo. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I remember Montoya made everyone so mad when he showed up. He's like, "Yeah, this isn't very hard." That was Montoya. But then once he won it, uh, it became an obsession with him to try to win a second one. That's why he kept coming back, you know, even when he had a chance to race elsewhere. And so I think you even see with Alonzo a little bit. They they want to act like it's just another race, but they realize very quickly that it's not. Yeah, and speaking of, I know when when I went there, the my main focus was on Alonso in 2017. That was right. like, you know, the, there was the hype around him. It seems to have faded a bit with him. Do you think there's any? Ch- I was going to ask you general predictions. We'll start with Alonso because that seemed to be all I was talking to you about in 2017. Um, do you think he's got any chance of of winning because he's qualified so far back? I know the Indy 500. It's impossible to pick a winner, but did, did, where are his chances in relation to some of those other guys? Well, it's better than it used to be. You know, it used to be if you, if you didn't qualify for the first couple of rows, you, were, you didn't have a chance because everything got so strung out and it was such, so much more back in the day of an endurance race. You know, it felt like a 24-hour endurance race where, you know, you just want to survive and get to the last 20 laps, get to the last pit stop, you know, and maybe with a chance to win. And really only the, the first couple of rows had a chance. The numbers tell you that. You know, way back in the day when it – Literally, no one finished the race. You know, you could start in the back and win. But, but you can now, too. And we've seen drivers in recent years make a run from the back. So, yeah, absolutely you could do it. And, and that team is better than people realize. Um, you know, it's got two young drivers that, that have done so much work. Uh, I mean, Gilles Deferrin, uh one of my favorite people in motorsport. Um, you know, th- this is a smart group of people. And so, yes, they have – chance uh it is going to be very difficult because if you look at the teams that are in those front rows i mean i mentioned marco andretti i mean there's andretti all sport who alonzo essentially drove for you know when you were here uh obviously penske ganassi i mean the teams that are here all the time and are always the ones that have a chance to win the race but uh so yeah there i'm saying there's a chance (laughs) but but uh, but but it isn't a great one but uh but but i also know how focused alonzo is um, because he knows he's not going to be back for at least a couple of years. Uh, we all know that now. Mm-hmm. Rose made that very clear. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, and, and so I think that uh, um, they're focused and uh, last year they were not. Yeah. And just finally on, you mentioned Andretti a couple of times. There's such, 
we talk about prestige around that name, but there's also that prestige, well, maybe prestige is the wrong word, but there's that aura around the Andretti curse that's gone on right. for so long. He so nearly won it when Sam Hornish beat him. I remember watching that, one of yep. the first Indy 500s, I actually, you know, actually watched the whole way through. How, how, do you, how do you feel he is going into it? Because, you know, this race, as soon as there's an Andretti anywhere near the front, I think people just kind of lose their minds a little bit and think this could be it. This could be the year that it happens. Yeah, well, and even with no fans, you know, there's a, there was a great video. Uh, uh, Douglas Balls, the president of the Nelson Speedway, went across the street to one of the gravel parking lots uh, there across Holman Boulevard, and and the uh, and there was a group of it was a couple of dozen fans, and they were spread out, and they had their masks on the whole thing, but they were looking between the grandstands uh, where the museum is. There's one big television screen, and they were watching qualifying, and their reaction when Marco won the pole. That was pretty amazing. And then uh, there was a video that the Penske team Penske posted on Twitter of their drivers after they had qualified, knew they didn't have a shot at the pole, and them reacting to Marco winning the pole. And they went nuts like he was a teammate. And, and and for folks who don't know, I mean Andretti and Penske. I mean these, these are this is these are these are the Goliaths. This is a, for for an American terms, the Red Sox and the Yankees, they don't like each other and, and they compete on, but they do like each other and they're pulling for Marco. So I talked to him about it on the phone Monday uh, after he won the poll on Sunday. And, uh, and I immediately, and, I, and I've been interviewing this kid since he was 18 years old. And, you know, Emil is like, all right, let's get this out of the way. He goes, Andretti curse. And I said, yeah. And he laughed and he's had a great attitude about it. His father, Michael, was never great at media. And he'd tell you that. Um, and he really got tired of hearing about the Andretti curse. Uh, Marco kind of embraces it a little bit. He has fun with it. And so he knows what the numbers are. He knows how successful they are. Uh, but first, Andretti to win a pole in 33 years. Um, and, and if he were to win that race, uh, even though there will be no fans in the stands, uh, I've got a feeling that if, if you listen, you'll be <laughs> able to hear some cheers around Speedway, Indiana, because there are going to be people still gathered in parking lots and backyards around the racetrack and it's it would be it would be a moment although i have no idea what i'm going to ask him next year if you if he wants us on this you can't win this race because i it's part of my indie tradition you know uh, is to get donuts at the bakery across the street and to go get uh the shrimp cocktail st elmo's and uh and to get there at six o'clock in the morning to hear the cannon shot but also to ask an andretti about the andretti curse so if it goes <laughs> away man what what am i going to ask him yeah well the the curse will still be going at Indy 500s with fans, so maybe you just maybe you just hear yeah. the question. No, that's it. Okay, yeah, there you go, yeah. there you go. That's that's why you're good at what you do. I've got my angle <laughs> now for for, uh, for Alexander Rossi, thank you so much for coming on to the ESPN F1 podcast. How are you doing? Good man. How are you? Yeah, not too bad, thanks. I've got to say, I was prepping for this interview, and your Twitter feed gave me good reason to have a chuckle. Your golf buggy for this weekend. I don't know if that's the official term for it, golf buggy, or if you guys have a, a better golf name. Cart. Yeah, golf cart, yeah. Uh, somebody, somebody who I believe you have tracked down who it is has taken the wheels off of that and put it on top of your motorhome, which I guess is not the, the best way to spend a Wednesday morning for you. But talk me through that. It looks like good-natured fun, I suppose, if you're the one doing it. For sure. I mean, there's there's always been pranks um, throughout <laughs> the Indy Car Paddock, especially during the, the, the month that the Indy 500 is at the Speedway, because... You know, everyone's kind of in close quarters and, and knows where everyone's um, living, if you will. So um, actually the past couple of years have been fairly quiet, um, but it seems that people, since we don't have a lot going on this week because of the nature of the world, um, you know, got the, the prank bug again and uh, I was the victim of it. But don't worry, um, tonight uh, it's going to come back to him. So it's going nice. to be pretty fun. Yeah. And you know who it was? 
Yes. Nice. Well, if, if, if we see one grid slot missing on Sunday, we'll know who it was. Um, <laughs> did you have anything crazy when you were a rookie there? Is it kind of, do you get like initiations as a rookie in terms of pranks? Is there anything you can remember? No, I didn't get anything too much. I was involved in, in kind of on the other side of it. We, uh, we in 2017, bought a um, train horn, a remote controlled train horn on Amazon and actually screwed it underneath one of the guys' golf cart seats. And so every time he was driving through Gasoline Alley or whatever, we'd just press a button and there'd be this train horn. And he didn't know where it was coming from in the beginning. <laughs> so that, that was a good one. Um, another one was we uh, took a bunch of balloons and filled them up in someone's bus, but we filled them up and there was glitter in the balloons so that you couldn't get them out the door because they were so big. So the only solution was pop them, but then the glitter and confetti was out of there. So it's, it's, they're pretty mild in, you know, before I got to the series, there were some pretty like intense ones, some pretty brutal ones that would have cost people a lot of money, but now it's just, it's just all fun and games. Yeah, it does sound quite elaborate. Um, talking about the build-up to this year's race, obviously you're no stranger now to the Indy 500. I think it's your fifth race you're coming into. How weird has it felt without all of that fanfare around things? Because that's so synonymous with the race. It must have felt kind of alien to, to you guys so far. For sure. I mean, it's this race is all about the, the kind of fan experience and um, especially on race day when you've got 350,000 people in a, in a, in a stadium, if you will, um, in an arena, it's, it's unlike anything else. And, you know, the, the practice and qualifying days, you know, there's always some people there, but you know, it was pretty, pretty normal, I guess. I mean, it was quieter, but you didn't really get the full effect of, of the place being packed like we will here in, in a couple of days. And I think that's really when it's going to hit home for a lot of people. Um, you know, the pre-event, the, the festivities leading up to the race on Sunday morning are, you know, some of the coolest things that you can do in, in all of sports. And it's going to be very different this year. And it's, it's obviously um, a shame, but it's, it's a huge blessing that we're able to get the race in, in the first place. And, you know, I think the, the one thing we got to remember is even though there's not actual spectators in the seats, you know, there's a lot of people still um, really excited about the show and, and there'll be a lot of new traditions born hopefully this year um, from families still getting together to, to watch the race on Sunday. And I remember I, I was there in 2017 and I remember how early that event starts on Sunday. Does that change for you this year? Do you get maybe a few more hours in bed or are you pretty much sticking to things how they were before? So the race is actually now two and a half-ish hours later um, just based on TV time slots since we're now in August versus, versus Memorial Day weekend. So from that standpoint, um, yeah, it, everything starts later and, and you don't have really any of the normal obligations that you would so um it's going to be a pretty low-key morning like i don't even think guys will stay at the track to be honest because there's not going to be any traffic to get in so you'll just stay at home if you live in indianapolis and um just drive in the morning out like a like a normal race event i remember we spoke um in in the lead up to that race it was obviously you were coming back as defending champion and it stuck with me because you said that until you got there as a rookie in 2016 you'd never quite appreciated the how big the event was kind of the enormity of it when you look back on that race, I mean, what, what sticks out to you? Obviously, so much happened in that race for you. You won without any fuel in the car. You had to be towed back to victory lane. Is it a blur still, or do you, is it actually very vivid in your mind still, that, that, kind, of whole, that kind of whole day or that, that event itself? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's full of, obviously, super positive memories, and it's something I'll, rem I'll remember for forever. Um, but what's interesting is now every year that you go back and you don't win the – the desire to, to do it again grows even more and more. And, and, and a lot of people say it's, it's the guys that haven't won, you know, that 
you know, want, want it the most because they've been trying for so hard for so long and, and always have come up short. And there is a lot of truth to that, but I think there's also the other side of the coin where you have the guys who have gotten to experience all that comes with winning the 500 and every year that goes by that you're not able to kind of get that experience again and, and kind of promote the race for an entire year. Um, you, you kind of, you miss it and, and you're jealous of the person that wins because you know how, how cool and special that is. So, um, you know, we've, we've, been, we've been good. We've come up short the past couple of years, um, but we've always been strong here. So, so we're hoping that 2020 is uh, the year that we can get number two. And talking of number two, you were so close to that last year. I remember watching that and you were, you were one of the guys that stood out. And we just spoke to Ryan McGee uh, before this on the show. And he said that that performance really sticks out for him just because of how strong that performance was. Compared to the win, is that the sort of race that kind of just, just sticks with you for a while, you know, thinking about what might have been and just the margins of, of between victory and defeat there for you? Yeah, I mean, I think about last year way more than I think about 2016 because it feels like one that, that got away, you know, you, you never are guaranteed a, a, a good card, Indy. Um, you know, you can go through all the same exercises and even day to day, like last weekend, you know, we, we had a, a phenomenal car on day one of qualifying. We didn't touch anything and just rolled out for day two and, and the speed wasn't there. So, you know, it's, it's a very unique place from that standpoint, you know, the wind um, and the direction that's blowing on a certain day can, can have a huge impact on, on your particular car's balance. So when you get into a race and you're able to do, you know, 500 miles and, and kind of be there at the end with an opportunity to win and you don't win, it, it sucks because um, you, you never know if you're going to get that opportunity again. Um, so, yeah, definitely I think about last year a lot, you know, kind of replay that one a lot in my head and think, could I have done anything different? Is there anything I should have done? It would have given us a better opportunity um so yeah i mean it, it sucks uh but we have another opportunity this year i think the car is good so uh we'll try and get it done this time and another thing warren said and i agree with completely is how impressive it's been you came from i guess for one of a better way of saying it, a, a kind of a road course background you were very much pointing towards formula one but you've become so strong as you said you've run very strongly at indy you've you've been strong at oval racing as well so how how has that how have you been able to do that because a lot of guys spend their whole careers working up that ladder doing those races and I remember you telling me once that Phoenix, I think Phoenix 2016 was your first oval race. And you said it was like just a weekend of terror because you'd not really done anything, you know, like that before. And you were just having to build up to it. So how, how, have, you, how have you adapted and kind of come around to that so quickly, do you think? You know, I've been fortunate. I mean, Andretti Autosport has always been, you know, one of the best teams in Indianapolis, um, kind of regardless of, of the, the regulation, the spec of the car. Um, they've always had, had good cars. So for me... I've always been able to have a pretty good platform to kind of just build and, and gain confidence year after year. And, and with that, you know, my teammates are some of the best guys to, to drive around Indianapolis year in and year out. So I, I kind of, from the beginning, had the best circumstances um, to kind of learn as a rookie. There's a lot of guys that, you know, come up through the, the ladder ranks and, um, you know, they have overall experience, but their first Indy 500 is with a, you know, a smaller team. It's a one-off one-off event and you know through that you, you maybe don't have the best um, coaching and, and it's very easy to establish bad habits early on and then at 230 miles an hour it's hard to kind of do anything different than what you already know so I was really fortunate in the beginning to kind of have the best of the best and just be able to, to build on that year after year and you know ovals are still are still strange to me um, even now that I've done probably 20 to, to 30 of them it's still 
you know, I, I have to think about it. Whereas, you know, you get on a road and street course and it's, it's very much second nature to me. Um, but for sure, I'm, I love, I love the racing side of it. Um, I love how challenging they are. And, um, you know, I've, 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 I've kind of found a huge appreciation for ovals and uh, couldn't imagine the series without. And just looking at it from the, the race from a competitive standpoint, we t I talk so often to Formula One guys who are in the lower half of the grid, you know, midfield guys, or maybe even with back-running cars, and they know going into every weekend, they're like, look, if I maximize everything, it's 15th, it's, it's maybe 14th, it's maybe, hey, if it rains, maybe we'll get 11th, you know, we're still talking about points. For you, you, you guys are all such competitive guys, like, how, how, how much does it change for you when you go into these races, and not just Indy, but especially a race like Indy, when you know, like you said, if, if things fall the right way for you, you're right there in the, in the mix to win it, whereas in, in F1, you need you know, when you were driving for Mano, it would have taken a pretty special set of events to have been, you know, to have been that high up. It must, it must change the appreciation for everything so much. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's, um, there's a lot of things about F1 that are spectacular, right? Like it is, it is still the best cars, the best race cars on the planet at some of the best tracks and the best teams in the world. And, and from that standpoint, there's really no other series that, that comes close. Um, but you, you nailed it in the sense that in IndyCar, you've got, 20 to 25 guys every weekend that have pretty much the same opportunity to, to win. You know, you, you've got the bigger teams and you have the smaller teams, but ultimately it's, it's a pretty much a spec car. You know, you have different engine manufacturers and there are parts of the chassis that are open. Um, there's quite a bit of development that you can do, but ultimately you're looking at the difference of maybe three to six tenths in lap time versus three to five seconds in, in formula one. Right. So it's, um, it's a very different ball game from that standpoint. So for me, coming back to, to the States to race in IndyCar, it was a huge kind of boost knowing that, you know, as I, as I learned and progressed and got better and, and got used to the tracks and, and, you know, could continue to, to drive for Andretti Autosport, that there would be the opportunities to win races and, and um, you know, fight for championships. And, and that makes a huge difference for, for any competitor, knowing that, you know, when you wake up in the morning, you're pushing yourself in the gym or whatever, um, that you're doing it because you have a shot to win something. Whereas in F1, it's very much, you're, you're trying to do it to, to, to ultimately beat your teammate. And, you know, that has an end game as well. You know, there's, there's a method to the madness. If, if you prove yourself in the lower teams and, and you're able to kind of pull off one or two spectacular results in, in, in a couple of years, you know, you might get the opportunity. Um, but even with that being said, it, it still looks like there's only probably three or four cars that can actually win a race in a weekend. So it's, it's still a very difficult and different, di different series and championships, and they both have their strengths and weaknesses. Um, but I'm very glad and fortunate that the opportunity came to, to, to race an IndyCar in 2016. And um, just keeping it on the F1 theme for a while, there's obviously a lot of former F1 guys there, but there's always, when Fernando's there, there's a huge amount of interest in him. I was there in 2017. He did a very impressive job, but hasn't really had things his own way since he's been back there, which again, I guess shows just how difficult an event it can be um, to master. How, how have you found his, him being there? Cause he's always spoken so highly about the event and he's spoken about how, how just how difficult it is to, especially from what he's been doing is kind of getting into a car often from having done other things and trying to win it a one-off uh, win it in a one-off uh, way. Like he's been doing is that, do you think that makes it even harder for him to even, even get close to potentially doing that? So I think he, 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 in 2017 had, had a very unique situation because that was in the era of aero kits and the Honda aero kit was the super speedway kit was like miles above the Chevy one. And, um, 
driving a Honda car, driving an Andretti Honda car in, in that time period, it pretty much did its job for you. Not saying that Fernando didn't do an awesome job kind of getting up to speed and getting used to the ovals and, and, and following cars and racing in a pack. But there was a period in that race where Andretti Autosport was one through five mm -hmm. um, during the actual race on pace. So once we switched to kind of the spec aero kit in 2018, it got a lot more difficult to drive and the field got a lot closer. Um, so obviously he, you know, had a very good experience in year one. And then the subsequent years were, were more difficult for one reason or another, obviously um, through no fault of his own, you know, but I think it, it shows how important not only, you know, the, the driver is, but also the car does a lot of work for you at Indianapolis. Like you, you've got to have, um, kind of all the puzzle pieces lined up and it's the smallest little things that you wouldn't even think about that result in, in, in lap time and, and speed. And you can have two drivers that are, you know, of equal talent, um, go flat around Indianapolis for four laps and you can have a mile an hour to two mile an hour offset just in the way the car is built and prepped. And, and we don't even really understand it all. Like there's, there's some black magic that goes on at Indianapolis, um, kind of day after day. So, for him to do it, it, it shows the, the allure of the event, shows the magnitude and the importance of, of this race. Um, but I think it's also showed that, you know, you can be a two-time world champion and one of the best drivers in the world, and, and that doesn't mean that the Indy 500 owes you anything. You know, it, it truly is a special place that, um, and that's why the guys that win it mean so much, right? Because everything down to the smallest detail has to kind of fall into line for you to, to get your face on, on the board Warner trophy. And, um, you know, even though his, his car and overall performance this year hasn't been great, he still has a shot to win it. And, and that's, what's amazing about this event It's 500 miles, seven pit stops. And there's a whole lot of things that can happen. No one would have thought that I could win in 2016 and, and they were right to think that. Um, so at the end of the day on Sunday, you know, the, the, the track's going to choose one of the 33 guys to win in and he, he could be that guy.